This morning we are going to begin in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, as we this morning start a journey in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a city in Asia Minor, very important city and very important church for the New Testament. Why? Because not only was the book of Ephesians written to the church of Ephesus, which we'll be spending this spring in, but the book of Ephesians, the book of First and Second Timothy were written to Timothy as he pastored the church in Ephesus and how to deal with the issues there. And the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written addressing the church in Ephesus. And a portion of the book of Acts and a portion of the book of Revelation are all dealing with the church in Ephesus. So we're going to be in Ephesus for quite some time, but we're going to begin looking at the establishment of the church in Ephesus. Here's how it begins, where we find ourselves in biblical history. At this point in time, uh, Jesus Christ has come, and he has lived his life. He has died on the cross. He rose from the grave. Sometime later, 40 days later, there was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The church was birthed. Soon there was a persecution that scattered the believers throughout the Middle East, throughout up through Asia Minor and through Southern Europe and also through North Africa. And with that, there's the establishment of the church. The apostle Saul was converted and became the apostle Paul, and he has been sent out on a missionary journey. And that is where we pick up the story. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. That name will come up again. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Focus of our time here this morning is now this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, that you would help us to understand how you use amateur Christians for extraordinary things, that you use amateur Christians to chatter and to gossip about the gospel and to bring about life change. Would you help us to understand that more deeply this morning? We pray, amen. Most Christians that I know really want their faith to count. They want their faith to make a difference, and they want their faith to make a difference in their own life. And so they come to church, and they hear things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe, the things that Christians believe, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They hear talking heads like me talk about how you need to be witnesses to your coworkers and share the gospel. And as it happens, people sit and they listen, and there's a sincere desire for that to be expressed in their life and for that to actually occur in their life. But very soon, that sincere desire gets mixed up with various insecurities, saying, you know what, I'd really like to 
tell somebody about what Jesus has done in my life, but I, you know, I don't know what happens if they ask me a question that I don't really know about, and I don't know how to answer it, and I'm not really sure about this particular thing, or I feel comfortable bringing up this topic. And so they feel insecure about it and really just hope, you know, I wish someone better would come along and tell them for me. And maybe someone better would come along, or maybe at the worst, maybe that there's some way that I could, like, you know, that they could bump into someone who's, you know, like a professional, like a pastor, and they could meet a pastor, and a, and a pastor could tell them how to do this and could explain these, explain these things to them. And there's this tension over the sense of our own inadequacies and yet the things that the Lord calls us to. But the remarkable picture of Scripture is that the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the history of the world principally advances not through the professionals, but through the amateurs, if you will, through normal people like you. Michael Green, in his fantastic book on evangelism in the early church, gives this observation about how the gospel spread so rapidly and turned the, the Roman Empire upside down. And what he notes, that the, that the principal advancement of the gospel did not occur through the big names like the Apostle Paul. No, rather they occurred like this. As early as Acts chapter 8, we find that it is not the apostles, but the amateur missionaries, the men evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them wherever they went. Not formal preaching, but informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances, in homes and in wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. And that is how the gospel advanced and spread. Well, what does it look like when a normal person goes chattering about Jesus? A normal person goes out and gossips about the gospel. Well, that's what we're going to examine here today. This picture of a very earlier follower of Jesus who really did not know a whole lot. And he exemplifies, this is Apollos, and he exemplifies for us several characteristics, I think, of what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. Characteristics that can, and dare I say, should and ought to be cultivated within you. Well, let's take a look at this guy, because it was through Apollos. Apollos, this, this un, not, not professional person, not an apostle, it was him that God used to establish the church in Ephesus. Here is the description of him. The first characteristic of Apollos was that he was educated and he was competent in the Bible. He was educated and competent in the Word of God. The text says this, that there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria who came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. Key point here is he's educated and competent. How do we know this? Is that he was a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was the intellectual center of North Africa, certainly of Egypt. Alexandria was known for their superior educational system for their residents. Alexandria had a world-famous library. This particular text, Luke, the writer of Acts, says that, he, that Apollos was an eloquent man. The word there for eloquent means that he was learned. He was skilled. He was eloquent in speech. He had been trained to be a communicator and, and trained in philosophy and trained as a debater. He was educated. What this means for Apollos is that he was one 
who didn't just read thinkers who agreed with him. He didn't just listen to speakers who already articulated the viewpoints that he already held to. But he studied philosophy and studied viewpoints of those who disagreed with him. Now, what, was a, what unfortunately today is a rare combination is that he was educated and competent in the scriptures. It's that he knew the word of God. He knew how to use it. He could respond to questions that people would ask, people that were not Christians. He could articulate to them how the Bible answers their questions. He had a mastery of the Bible. And his competence in the Word of God, combined with the working of the Holy Spirit in him, combined together for a powerful ministry. But unfortunately, these two characteristics of being educated and competent are a rare combination. A rare combination in Christianity. Let me give you two examples or two contrasts, because the tendency is one or the other. It is to be educated, but not competent in the Scriptures, or to be hopefully competent in the Scriptures, but not educated. Let's take a look at the first half of that. Educated, but not competent. Currently in the United States, mainline denominations are declining by one million members annually. When I say mainline denominations, we're talking about what you hear in the news for Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, this would include your American Baptists, your Continental Baptists, um, to name a few, mainline denominations, declining by a million members annually. annually. There's a study that was released two weeks ago that was analyzing the, de the decline in churches, um, particularly in these mainline denominations, and so they did something different. They wanted to have a consistent study set, so they said, within our own, within our own sample set, let us examine the theological views of the churches that are growing and the churches that are declining. Here is what they discovered. So they gave a survey, and the survey asked questions such as this. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead with a real flesh and blood body, leaving behind an empty tomb? Growing churches, 83% of worshipers and 93% of clergy said, yes, I believe that to be true. Declining churches, 67% of worshipers and 56% of the clergy believed that Jesus rose from the grave. Next survey question. God performs miracles and answers to prayers. Growing churches, both 90% of worshipers and 90% of clergy agreed with that statement. In declining churches, 67%, I'm sorry, 80% of worshipers agreed, while only 44% of clergy agreed with the statement that God performs miracles in answer to prayers. Now, there is a question that goes through my mind and has gone through my mind for quite some time. And the question that goes through my mind, one, being a pastor, is if you don't believe in Christianity, why on earth would you become a pastor? I, I, I mean, I genuinely wonder this. Why go through the challenges of seminary? It's not the most lucrative career field. Why would you do this? Why would you do this if you don't believe it to be true? Well, in, in, interestingly, um, there is analysis of this paper, and it is written by the, the, the author of the article. And the author of the article gave his assessment for why liberal theology continues to endure. And when I say liberal theology, that's not a slant. That is a defined position. It is like saying you're a part of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Tea Party movement. It is a defined set of beliefs to say, I subscribe to liberal theology. That is an articulated set of beliefs, namely, as represented here, as two examples of not believing in the supernatural and supernatural workings of God and not believing in the, in the truth of Scripture. This is a defined position. 
So, why do people become ministers? This was the analysis. Thus, liberal theology has been taught for decades in mainline seminaries and preached from many mainline pulpits. That is the majority of seminaries in the United States. Its enduring appeal to embattled clergy members is that it gives intellectual respectability to religious ideas that, on the surface, might appear far-fetched to modern audiences. Do you hear the assumption? The assumption is that you cannot be educated and a Christian. You cannot be educated and competent in the Word of God. These two things can't go together. Because intellectual respectability to religious ideas that on the surface might appear far-fetched to modern audiences. So instead of understanding how the Word of God answers the questions that educated people would ask, there is just an outright rejection to say it's impossible for these two things to go together. Let's contrast that with a man by the name of Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was aptly named because he was martyred. Justin Martyr lived from 100 to 165 AD. It's a very important figure in church history, namely because Justin was like the grandchild, of, spiritual grandchild of, John, of the Apostle John. And Justin Martyr converted to Christianity in the midst of much persecution. And in his autobiography, he reflects why he became a believer. And he says this, he said, I found this philosophy alone to be safe and profitable. What he goes on to argue, he says, I found that Christianity alone was able to answer the difficult questions. That Christianity alone gave a reasonable understanding of the way things, the world works. It alone made sense of these things. And Justin went on to write a book called His Apology, which was a defense of the Christian faith, arguing why Christianity is superior to pagan philosophy and ideas. One who is educated and competent in the Word of God. Fortunately, there are others, not just Justin Martyr, but other examples such as C.S. Lewis, highly educated, who became convinced of the truth of Scripture and became a believer and argues for a Christian faith. Francis Schaeffer would be another one. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great philosophers of American soil. Tim Keller being a modern uh, pastor who is effectively articulating how Christianity answers the questions of today. But the tension here is to be educated and not competent in the Word of God. And the tension that the liberal theologians feel is the issue to be intellectually respectable to modern issues and modern concerns. Let me be very clear. We do not need to make the Word of God relevant. We do not need to make Christianity credible. It already is. And our job is just simply to show how it is. So on the one hand is to be educated but not competent. On the other side is to be competent in the word of God but not educated. I have this regular occurrence when I am in social gatherings not connected with our church out in the community. And my regular occurrence is that I go and we, I meet somebody new. We start to talk, talk. What do you do? I say, I work in the community. That usually carries on the conversation for a little bit. And then they say, oh, really? So what do you do? And I say, a pastor. I'm a pastor. And no joke, nine times out of ten, when I say that, I'm a pastor, they go like this. Oh. <laughs> like, no, I mean, they literally turn their back and walk away at the end of that. Second thing that happens is that for those that stick around beyond the I'm the pastor, converse, the pastor introduction, the second thing that oftentimes happens is people say, really? How weird. Like, like, and they're like, really? 
like, this is really interesting. Can you tell me about that? Like, tell me about yourself. How did you become a pastor? Someone goes along the way, and I say, well, I, I went to college. And they say, you went to college? <laughs> really? I say, well, yeah, I, I did. And I got a degree in biology. Oh, okay. And then I say, um, and then I went to, se to seminary, and I, I got my master's degree. And they say, oh, I got a master's degree, too. I'm like, well, that's cool. I said, you know, my master's degree was not 30 credit hours. It was 110 credit hours to, to get it. And they're like, I had no idea. I had no idea. And this is the next statement. And I've done this multiple times. I had no idea that you would need to be educated to do what you do. Okay? I mean, I, and I appreciate the sincerity and the honesty of these things. It's, it's like, it's so much fun. And... Um, no, I mean, it is. It, it, it's just, it, it, it's so much fun. But unfortunately, the assumption, the operating assumption, at least here in Southern Maryland with many people I've interaction with, is that if you're a Christian, or at least a pastor, you are ignorant and uneducated. And that the people who are attending churches are listening to people who are ignorant and uneducated, and they themselves are most likely ignorant and uneducated. Both uneducated and maybe or maybe not competent in the Word of God. And unfortunately... If I gave, you know, a critique of the mainline churches earlier, here is a critique of the Bible church movement, the non-denominational church movement, the independent church movement, is that widespread among the, that movement is that the churches do not require education for their pastors, and many of them don't even require competence in the Word of God on that front. Now, you combine that, that dynamic which has cultivated into, within evangelical Christ, Bible-believing Christianity, this anti-intellectualism that's present in America against Bible-believing Christianity. I'm sorry, anti-intellectualism within Bible-believing Christianity against anything that does not originate from within Christianity. And, and unfortunately, there is this prolific disdain for any form of secular education. There is a disdain for secular philosophy, medicine, biology, anything that didn't originate within Christian circles. And instead of studying to learn these ideas and these ideas that are prevalent in our world, or at the least trying to understand why ideas that are contrary to the Word of God are attractive and compelling to people, there is an outright rejection of anything that doesn't originate within Christian circles. What's even more disturbing is that those same circles of people are oftentimes within evangelical Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity, very quick to adhere to anecdotal articles that people find on the Internet and surprisingly quick to come to conclusions and speak about topics that the person has little understanding for. And it's especially disturbing to me that this occurs within the Reformed faith communities because we who are believers of churches such as ours, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it actually is God's Word. We believe that it is sufficient for every situation. We believe that it is competent for all of, all of life. And we also believe that it is not exhaustive. It doesn't tell you how to roast a prime rib. It doesn't tell you how to fly an airplane. That it is sufficient for all of life, for all things that pertain to salvation and to godliness. And we believe, because we believe the Bible, we believe that all people are created in the image of God. And because they're created in the image of God that they cannot help produce things that reflect God's image in what they do. And we believe that there is design that is, um, that is infused into this world, that is infused into the creation. And we believe that, that there is design in this world to be discovered and to be, 
to do be developed and to be made flourishing within our world. And we believe that this ability, we call it common grace, people created in the image of God, is present for both Christians and for non-Christians. And so it's particularly disturbing when Christians who hold to a position that anything that is true is ultimately God's truth reject anything that doesn't originate from within Christianity. Competent but uneducated. So it's a question to ask yourself. Are you educated and competent in the word of God? One of the reasons I appreciate Ravi Zacharias' ministry is that their tagline is this, helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. Are you a thinker who believes and a believer who thinks? These two things should go together. And let me give you a, you know, on, on the one hand, there's those who is um, on the aspect of being educated. That doesn't necessarily mean do you have to have formal training, but just simply, are you credible to speak to an issue, not do you have an advanced degree in it? And a simple rule of thumb as to whether to speak or to not is this. Can you articulate the other person's view in such a way and in a tone of voice that the other person would agree with you? And if you can't do that, you don't understand their argument and their position well enough to publicly argue against it. Christianity is true. It can handle your doubts. It can handle your questions. It can handle your objections. You do not need to be afraid that you're going to come across something that's going to cause you to doubt. You probably will, but you don't need to be afraid of those doubts because those questions and doubts should drive us into a deeper understanding of the Word of God. It should make you more competent in the Word of God and more educated. On the other hand, a question for you, if you've been a Christian longer than three years, are you competent in the Word of God? Are you competent in it? You know, competence is not Bible trivia. Being competent in the Word of God is being able to demonstrate what you believe from the Word of God. That you're able to answer the questions that your coworkers and family members ask from the Word of God. In your community group guide, I've got seven or eight questions there that you should be able to answer from God's Word. It's question number four within your guide that you've got there. Those are questions you should be able to articulate. They're questions that have very reasonable answers. And anyone who has been a Christian for at least three years, should be able to articulate those things. And again, I would ask the question, if you are not competent in the Word of God and you've been a Christian longer than three years, why not? Why not? Aside from a severe illness for yourself or a family member, I cannot think of a good reason for you not to be competent in God's Word and not pursuing competence and not seeking to understand answers to what are very basic questions for Christianity? One way that you can do that is we're launching off today some great adult Sunday school classes. Craig Lee is starting a class on conversational apologetics, working through the book Conversational Evangelism, but also Tim Keller's book Reason for God and Mere Christianity. It's a great way for you to learn more about how does Christianity, how does the Bible speak to the answer, how does the Bible answer the questions that people are asking today? Israel is going to be leading a class on Helos Emmanuel, which is how does Scripture and the hope of Jesus speak to the issue of racial, of, of racial divide and racial tensions within our country, in our country. Bobby Ridley is starting a class on, called Moving On, which is how do, you, how do you forgive somebody when you've really been hurt? I mean, when you've really, really been hurt, how do you forgive somebody? And concurrent, like right now, 
um, Tom Cavallari is leading a class on living by faith in a pluralistic society. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus when nobody that you know is a follower of, follower of Jesus in your workplace? If you, are, if you are a Christian more than three years and you are not competent in the word of God, why not? If you are not teaching a Sunday school class, why are you not in one? Why are you not learning and growing and encouraging and practicing how to understand and articulate these things? And if you're here today and you're, and you're not a Christian and you're, or you're saying, I, I don't really know what I believe and you're trying to investigate these things and you're trying to figure it out, this is a great place for you. We firmly believe that honest questions deserve honest answers. And if Christianity is true, there should be reasonable answers to the questions that you ask. And as a church and as a pastor, my desire is that wherever you are in your spiritual journey is just to help you take the next step. To help you take the next step in your spiritual journey so that you would begin to understand and have answers to some of these huge questions. And I would love to sit down and to work through these things with you and to understand your story and to understand the questions and the challenges that you have in faith and the challenges of your own life. But may it not be said among us. <laughs> may it not be true among us. Put it this way. May it be rare among us that there is someone, a part of this church, who is not educated and also competent in the word of God. Second characteristic here is that not only was Apollos educated and competent, but he was fervent and he was accurate. Also, unfortunately, a rare combination. The text says this. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Too often, those who are accurate to the word of God, those who have right theology, those who are committed to being right, those who may actually be right, may actually be communicating the truth, too often, those who are accurate lack fervency. They lack spiritual passion and vigor, and instead their faith has devolved to this cold, callous, joyless bitterness, self-righteous judgmentalism, and oftentimes, unfortunately, teaching churches who are accurate in teaching and have accurate teaching are weak in evangelism, weak in prayer, and weak in worship. On the other hand, those who oftentimes are passionate and have conviction and, have, and are motivated to action are oftentimes very careless with the Word of God. And whether it's our own reaction to someone's passion, whether it's our own sense of conflict avoidance or our own sense of inspiration, if someone is passionate and if someone has a passion, there is a tendency to put them in leadership. I think in large part because other people don't want to stand in the way of a target of a frustrated passion. They don't want to stand in the way of that, so they're like, okay, you just, you just go. Like, 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 you point that cannon that way and just go. But oftentimes with that is that those who are passionate are missing their accuracy to the word of God. Those who are passionate are not seeing the things that they need to see from Scripture and from their brothers and sisters because others are just getting out of their way. And in emotional churches, oftentimes they lack solid teaching and spiritual depth. They have zeal, but they do not have knowledge. But these two things should go together. Because if you are right and you have right thinking, that should motivate you to joy-filled worship and sharing with other people. 
So let's ask two questions on each side of that. If you are one who is right in your theology, if you are one who is competent in your knowledge of the Bible, how's your joy? How is your joy in your faith? Would that be a characteristic of your faith? They say, I love being around that person because their joy is so contagious. And if that's not you as a Christian, why not? On the other side, if you're one who's fervent and passionate, may you be fervent to know the Word of God, and may you bind yourself to its truth and its teaching. Again, a rare combination. Third one is not only was he fervent and accurate, but also he was bold and humble. Verse 26 tells us this. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, that's a, that's a wife and husband pair, Priscilla the girl, Aquila the guy. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos here is described as one who was bold. He spoke boldly in the synagogue. He was one who was confident to articulate his position. This is very stunning because he really didn't know anything. He didn't. The text tells us that, Ap that Apollos only knew of the baptism of John, John the Baptist. So what this most likely means for Apollos is that he certainly had never met Jesus, certainly was not present to Jesus' ministry. He most likely had not heard of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And he certainly had not heard of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit. And he absolutely had not been taught by one who had been sent out by the apostles and sent out by Christ's church. But what he did know, he knew. And he was confident in it. And he was confident to teach the truth and to stay accurate to Scripture despite his knowledge being exceedingly limited. He was confident in what he knew. And for him, it was as if he was saying, if you have the truth, why shy away from it? I think so many Christians today say, you know what, I don't really want to talk about my faith because I don't really know enough and I'm not really sure about these things. And what happens if someone asks me a question I don't understand and I don't want to be embarrassed? I don't want to look like one of those uneducated Christians you were just talking about. I, I don't know enough, so I'm just not going to say anything. You know, I liken this experience, you know, with Apollos being confident and bold in what he knew, yet he also recognized his limitations. I liken it to, to, to um, if you've ever been in one of those you know, cathedrals that has incredible mosaics on the ceiling and all over. There was one of these in St. Louis, the, the Basilica of St. Louis. It's gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful work of architecture and art. It's, a, it's, it's, it is, it's an amazing structure. If it was in Europe, people would flock to it, but we're in America and we don't really do that kind of thing, so everyone just kind of ignores it. If you go there, nobody will be there. It's amazing. It is gorgeous. There are acres and acres and acres of these detailed mosaics that just cover the ceiling floor to wall and just go. And they're beautiful, but you can't see them because it's dark, right? I mean, you can't. You walk through there, there's just like candle lit. You can't see anything that's in there. And so you get your little guide as you're going through, and they'll say, oh, you're in the hallway of St. Peter, and you will see, um, you know, the angel, and he's gathered together with the heavenly hosts, and they're all gathered around singing the praises over the birth of the, of the, of the Messiah. And you're like, I can't see anything in here, man. Like, this is so dark. And so you're looking, and they say, you're like, I can't see anything, but I, I do see that angel. I, I see that one. And no, I can't see everything else. No, I, I can't 
right now, from my viewpoint, I cannot make sense of how this angel fits together with everything else that is going on here, but I cannot deny that right in front of me is an angel. And I think that's what Apollos was doing, is that he is confident in what he knows, however limited it is. He has confidence in there saying, you know, I don't know about this, and I don't know about that, and I'm not sure how all these different things are going to, be, going to fit together. But this I know is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And let me show you from Scripture why that's the case. Is that he, was, he articulated, and he was bold to do so, and bold to communicate it. But what's remarkable is not only was he bold, but he was humble. He was humble. Is that the text tells us that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and, Priscilla and Aquila being disciples of the Apostle Paul, left by Paul in Ephesus to help the church there. It says they took him aside. They didn't publicly rebuke him. They took him aside to explain Scripture and to explain things more accurately. And we have to appreciate Apollos' humility. Because he was open to instruction. And in particular, the text tells us that they took him and they instructed him. Both words there are, are plural verbs. Why that matters is because what the text is telling us is that he was instructed not only by Aquila, but by Priscilla. And in ancient Greek culture, it would have been unheard of for a man to be instructed by a woman. For someone that did not have full status, full citizenship, it was unheard of for him to be instructed by someone who had such inferior position and likely inferior education. But he was willing to be instructed in the Word of God. We don't know what he didn't understand or did or did not understand. But consider his humility. Apollos was clearly the superior public speaker. He was clearly the superior personality and more fearless personality, it appears. Yet... He was willing to listen to two Christians who knew more than them, more than him. His humility actually is rather humbling, if you will. I mean, it is hard for us to listen to people that we deem to be beneath us. It is hard to listen to people that we regard as inferior or a lower status or a lower rank or lower income or were raised in a worse family or a worse part of the country. It is hard to listen to people that we deem to be below us. But I do believe the old adage, adage is true, that every person you meet is superior to you in something. That every person you meet is superior to you in something, and if your attitude towards interacting with every person you meet is that there is something that this person is my superior in, it will begin to, in you to cultivate a level of humility. But I want us to notice that for Apollos, this combination of both his boldness and humility, where, where did this fusion of these things occur? It occurred privately. And they took him aside, most likely into someone's home, and they wrestled through these things together. At Cornerstone, we wrestle through these things together in our community groups. It's the place that we wrestle through God's truth and the application of that truth in our lives, where we wrestle through the consistency or the inconsistency of it in our own lives. And again, if you've been a part of Cornerstone, we'll give you a break for more than three years. If you're not a part of a community group and not a part of a journey group, why not? Why not? Where are you getting private instruction? Where are you giving it? 
Where are you joining together with other believers to encourage one another in your relationship with the Lord and to challenge one another over the practices in your, in your own life? If you're not a part of one, why not? You know, we believe, because the Bible teaches it, that the preaching of the Word of God is central to the church and that it is foundational to the church. We ardently believe that. But because we believe the Bible, we also believe that the preaching of the Word of God is not sufficient. It's not sufficient for spiritual growth. And the reason why it's not sufficient is because the New Testament and the ministry of the Word shows that it's not. Is that Paul publicly taught, he publicly preached, and he met together with people in their homes. That the Christians worshiped together in the synagogues and day by day together in people's homes. That all the apostles did this. Actually, they did it in the Old Testament too. But the New Testament is characterized by this person-to-person, house-to-house ministry of believers, not just from the talking heads, but believers challenging each other in the Word of God and encouraging one another in their faith. And if you've not been a part of a group and you think that doesn't fit you or that is irrelevant to you, why do you think that you alone are exceptional from the biblical pattern that has existed for thousands of years? Why do you alone need to be one that doesn't need other believers actively speaking into your life and challenging you in the Word of God? Why are you not doing that for other people? Boldness and humility. And this is a great time to get connected to a community group, and we'd love to do that for you. But there's a calling for Christians to grow in their faith, to challenge one another in their walks with Jesus. The final thing here about Apollos is this, that his ministry was personal and not professional. He was a person. He was not a professional. He heard the message. He believed the message. He was diligent to understand the message, and he acted that message out. That message personally changed his own life, and he knew that other people needed that message too. He was passionately personal. The text tells us this, that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, that the Christ was Jesus. For Apollos, this was not an abstract concept. Apollos was a Jew. It was an important issue. It was not some abstract debate about Old Testament prophecy that didn't really relate to these people. No, he was debating as a Jew. He was debating with the Jews, his family members, his extended family members who have been persecuted, who have been sent into exile. He is debating with them whether or not Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And the reason why he is debating with them, because over these issues, if Jesus is the Messiah, is Jesus Christ God's promised deliverer? Is Jesus Christ God's appointed rescuer? Is Jesus Christ the one in whom we are rescued from our sins and given new life and life eternal? Is Jesus this one? And he wrestled with the Jews over this issue because he knew that if the Jews rejected the Messiah, the Messiah would reject them. They knew it. It was not an abstract concept, but something that was deeply personal. On July 4th, 1854, there was a notorious criminal in Great Britain by the name of Charlie Peace, and he was executed. And as he was brought from death row to be executed, he was brought up to the place where he was going to be hung publicly in front of the entire crowd. And a priest came out to lead the execution ceremony because they had a ceremony for everything, including executing criminals. Go figure. And the priest gathers before them, and he says to Charlie Peace moments before he is hung, he says this. 
in part, and as part of his written script. He says, those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release which death itself can bring. Charlie Peace turned his head and looked at him and said, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? And the priest stammered and was like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I suppose I do. To which peace responded, he said this. He says, I do not. But if I did, I'd get down on my hands and knees and crawl all over Great Britain, even if it were paved with pieces of broken glass, if I could rescue one person from what you just told me. And then the trap fell and he was hung. Each of you have people in your life who do not believe. Each of you have people who you love and work with who do not believe. Why? Why, why don't they believe? Have, have you ever asked the question? And I would just simply encourage you just to take a small step. That you would say to them at an appropriate time, you know, my life has been changed by Jesus. Jesus is my joy and my strength. He, he comforts me, and I have a personal relationship with him. You know, you've made it clear that you don't believe. I would really like to listen to you and understand why you're not a Christian. I, I would really like to understand why you don't take this seriously or, or why this is not believable to you. Would you be willing to share that? And then listen. And listen and understand and become educated on what they believe. Listen and understand and ask follow-up questions. And then say to them, thank you for sharing that with me. You know, a spiritual journey can be deeply personal. And I, and I greatly appreciate and respect your willingness to open up and to share that with me. And I want you to know that I deeply love you. And be quiet. And then pray. And pray earnestly. And then pray and reflect upon what they said until you really understand what they believe. And then pray and reflect upon that and seek the Lord and say, Lord, would you give an opportunity? Would you give an opportunity? Would you fill me with your grace that I might share how Jesus answers those questions? Brothers and sisters, my intention here this morning in no way whatsoever is to guilt you into anything. But it is quite simply this, that as followers of Jesus Christ, my desire is that your education would be exceeded by your competence in the Word of God. And that your accuracy would inspire your fervency. And that your boldness would all be all the more remarkable and credible because of your humility. And that you would be passionately personal in reaching out to others because Jesus Christ has changed you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you.
Lord, the words of Charlie Peace echo in our minds. And Lord, we ask that you would use us to be faithful, to be fruitful, for the furtherance of your kingdom to the ends of the earth, especially to those we love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.